Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi. Can I help you find something? Librarians specialize in helping you find what you were looking for. And sometimes what you didn't know you were looking for. Thank you for joining me as I talk to my guests about all things library, including the books inside them. I'm Julie Chavez, and this is Ask a Librarian. Eva Yerchik is a writer and librarian living in Toronto. She has written for Jezebel, The All, The Rumpus, and Publishers Weekly. The Department of Rare Books and Special Collections is her first novel, and I loved it. Here's my conversation with Eva. Hi, Eva. Thanks for being here today. Hi, Julie. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm so excited to chat with you. I am thrilled. I enjoyed your book so much. I have to tell you that when I first started working on this podcast, a friend of mine, Sherry, sent me a screenshot of your book and said, maybe you should interview this author because I was looking for library-themed books initially. And then I had forgotten because, of course, things got crazy. And then I got in touch with your publicist and I thought it popped up and I thought, yes, I've been wanting to read this book. So it worked out perfectly. It was very, it was full of serendipity. Yeah. And it's it's so exciting to get to talk to fellow library people about it. Yes. Oh, so tell me, I want to start with a very important question, which is as a teenager, Mm -hmm. what was your first job? Was it in a library or was it somewhere random? It was somewhere random. I was a hustler. I was like a hustler as a teen. teen. Oh, I love Um, it. So I think at 13, I was working, getting like cash under the table, working at a banquet hall. Okay. Sort of setting up and things for weddings. I think I looked too young to serve at the weddings, but I could do set up and tear down. And then I also just posted flyers around my neighborhood looking for work. And so I got sort of odd jobs that way. So like delivering stuff and doing things like that on my bike. I did work as a, at a library as a teen. I worked at a page at a public library, like shelving books, but I didn't get that until I was, you know, legally allowed to work. So like (laughs) started with hustling and then to library. So the library made you legitimate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's a good uh, first gig. I mean, babysitting, I feel like also is a form of hustling, isn't it? Like pay me to sit on your couch right. and eat your food after your kids go to bed. Right. I could never land one of those gigs. I pay babysitters now. I'm like, this is great. My kid goes to bed at seven, enjoy my Netflix and my $20 per hour. <laughs> one million percent. It's so true. Yeah. But then, you know, once you have kids, a good babysitter is worth their weight in gold. I would pay them. Totally thousands of dollars. It wouldn't even, yeah. I'd be like, look, totally. I'll go into debt for this. It's no problem. Yeah. <laughs> How old are your, do you have one child? I have one. Yeah. He's five. He's five. Oh, what a fun age. Oh, yeah. and you still go to bed at seven. Oh, mine oh. went to bed at seven for years and now they're teenagers and they stay up late. And it's, it's really aggressive. I have to say. Yeah. My husband still went to bed at seven. <laughs> Okay. So you got, so that was your first job. And then how did you get into libraries as 
a career. And just tell me about kind of your early years and experience with libraries. Yeah, sure. So my my mom worked in a library when I was a kid. So we uh, we immigrated. I live in Canada. We immigrated to Canada when I was when I was quite young. So she was a librarian back in the old country. But then we uh, immigrated here. Her credentials didn't translate over. So she was like a library assistant. Got it. In Canada for, for my whole life. Okay. So when I was a teenager, she's like, you know, come. This is a good part time job. Let's get off the street. Stop hustling and getting paid <laughs> cash at bank halls. Come get a legitimate job. So she helped me get a job as a, as a page. And I did it for a very short time. I think I only did it for uh, like six months or so. Cause I'm like, you know what, this is a great job and it pays well and it's safe and hours are great, but it's not very exciting. (laughs) So, so I did it for a really short time, went on, you know, got a job at a restaurant, you know, legitimately did that (laughs) for a long time, went to, uh, went to school, studied journalism, thought I was going to be a writer. That was, that was my grand plan all along. Not a fiction mm-hmm. writer. I thought I would do some sort of journalism. Okay. And I graduated into the Great Recession when mm-hmm. like jobs in print journalism were not abounding. Like not, not a lot of those out there. Right. So I was like, okay, I have to, I have to regroup. I can't go back to setting up a banquet halls for cash money. So what am I going to do? What am I going to do in life? And I had a couple of friendships that I had maintained from people who I'd known working at the public library when I, when I was a teenager, you know, just people I had stayed in touch with. And a couple of them had gone on to, to library school. Like, you know, you, you might like this. It's super interesting. You know, it's not, it's not writing, but it sort of seems like it'll, align with your interests. So, yeah. so I checked it out, decided to go to graduate school, thought I would work in a public library just because that was a sphere that I was really, that I was familiar with. I didn't, I didn't really know a lot about, you know, like a rare books library or an academic library or anything like that. And then when I was in school, I mean, I just, I fell in love with all of it. And I happened upon this job. I was still bartending at the time. So working full time, going to graduate school. I'm like, this is untenable, but these grad school jobs pay great. Maybe I can get one of those. And there just happened to be one where they were looking for someone who spoke Eastern European languages. I'm like full circle. Wow. I can do that. Yes. So I landed a job at the Rare Books Library really just because they were looking. They had a, they had a collection. They were getting lots of donations from from folks from Eastern Europe and they needed someone who can help process them. And I was so much less intelligent than everyone else who works there. You know, the (laughs) the people at the Rare Books Library at the time, it was really something. They had all been there for what felt like a million years. Mm -hmm. They all spoke 12 languages and had like a bunch of PhDs. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not, not like a lot. Right. And they were all just fascinating, wonderful people. And it was really like stepping into another into another world. I mean, the place was so special and magical too. And I feel like because they had all worked there for so long, not that they didn't appreciate where they worked. I think they all understood that it was really special, but I would walk in every day be like, this can't be real. This can't be my job. This can't be a real thing. And they were a little bit more used to it. So it was just really special and magical. So I got to do that for a year while I, while I was in grad school. Uh, and it was just, like just the best people, the best place, probably still the best job I'll ever have. It was pretty clear that I wasn't going to do that as a career because like I said, to work in rare books, you really do need the 12 languages and PhDs like everyone right. who does that. Yeah. 
uh, you know, I still do in my job right now. So anyway, I wound up working in academic libraries yeah. and collections. That's what I do. I, I developed library collections, not of rare books, of just the regular kind, which are still good, still exciting. Yes. But, you know, every now and then I'll interact with one of my colleagues down in rare books and they'll ask me something, they'll be asking me about something I'm like, oh, but this is written in ancient Greek. I'm like, we need to find someone who reads ancient Greek. And they'll be like, well, I, I read ancient Greek. Well, of course you do. Of course. Here, work on this for me. Fantastic. So yeah, so that was the kind of uh, weird circle that took me in and out and back into back into libraries. I love that story. And I really like that you drew on that environment to write about it. Because just listening to you talk about it, I can see some of the parallels between the environment you're describing and the environment in your book. And some of the mm. characters I can see just they're, some of them are just so, they're impressive people. I think, you know, the intellectual side of this is in- incredible. So I want to transition a little bit talking about the book, the Department of Rare Books and Special Collections, which I so enjoyed on multiple levels. And I want to talk about that in a minute. So when you decided to write a book, was it obvious to you that, okay, I'm going to write about that or how did that part come about? Yeah, you know, it did. It wasn't obvious to me from from the get go. I I always really loved that environment, and I thought it was really special. And I mm-hmm. wanted to explore it a little bit, like spend more time there, even if it were just in my imagination. But the Department of Rare Books and Special Collections, while it's the first book that I published, it's not the first book that I wrote. Like oh. a lot of writers, I have, yes. you know, the Desk Drawer novel that I joke that, you know, every time it got rejected, it was people told me it was too quiet, which is a really polite way of saying that it's super boring. <laughs> it's too quiet. Yeah, oh, quiet. I love everything about that. Yes, euphemisms yeah. for the win. Yeah, and that's kind, I guess. Uh, kinder, kinder than boring. So when I was thinking about what else to write, I had been removed from the Rare Books Library for a couple of years. I think I, you know, had graduated from school and I and I moved on. And the the place was still really stuck in my imagination. And I mm. feel like if I had been more qualified for the job, if I hadn't been so in awe of the people in the place, I don't think I could have written about it as well. But because I was always sort of standing back and admiring the people and the like, I was just taking in detail in a way yes. that I don't that I don't think someone who was more suited to the environment would. So I thought for a long time, you know, I'm still thinking about this place so much. I want to explore it a little bit. Um, setting a mystery there it seemed like it made a lot of sense because they're just like mysterious, spooky places that people have a lot of questions about. I don't think, I think that if you're not a rare books librarian or somebody who's really interested in rare books and manuscript, I don't think you think about rare books libraries a lot. Like you kind of know they exist, yes. but they're not the library. You don't interact with them. It's not like, oh, I take my kids to the public library once a week or, you know, you don't, you just don't, don't think about them. When you do, it's probably because something's gone wrong. Yes. You know, so you hear about a rare book theft or a fire or something like that. And that's when it enters into your imagination. So I think that people already have that sort of relationship in their brain with rare books libraries. So it seemed natural, you know, if I'm going to write about the place that there are, and I want to, because it's so special and the people are so special, but a mystery seemed like the right thing to set there because they're just, yeah, they're, they're mysterious. I think people think about them as mysterious places. 
You're exactly right. I wouldn't have put my finger on that, but it is so natural. And even reading the book, it makes total sense that that is, it just, it fits perfectly. So I love that you're characterizing it that way. And I think that's also a great tip for writers, something that had never occurred to me when you were talking about how as being more of a an observer and less of a participant based on your qualification, you do absorb more detail. Like if I, I was kind of thinking if I went to like a room of dancers, I would be paying attention so closely to what they were doing because I knew that I would not be part of it. So yeah, that's hundred percent. That's a really interesting tip. I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that. So maybe, maybe that's a tip for right. Instead of write what you know, it's write what you really don't know. Or yeah, really, I think there has to, I think there's yeah. a part of what, like, I agree with right what you know, yeah. but I do think that that distance, yes. that distance is helpful. Think about so often when we read a book or, or watch a movie, maybe I think about this in sort of film and television, but the point of view character is usually somebody who's a little bit on the outside because they have to sort of like explain stuff to you. And the yes. most natural way to do that is for them to be gathering information and getting the lay of the land themselves. And so I think that is useful. I don't know. There are, there are some writers, writers who I really admire who can write about something that they're deeply involved in or while Mm -hmm. they're in it. Like, for example, I don't think that I could write a book about being the mother of a young kid. Mm. Don't think I could do it. I think when my kid is older, I think I'll be able to, but I think that you need a certain level of remove and distance to really understand what you're looking at. And so entering a space and like seeing it and being in it, but not being an expert in it, I think is really useful when you're, when you're crafting fiction. Yeah. That's what I tell myself anyway. Yeah, I agree. So we can both tell ourselves that, tell each other. Exactly. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to point out, so you came up with this idea, but I know that I learned this from reading the author's note and let me back up. So when I was reading the book, there's a line about them going outside. I love also the tie-in with academia and kind of that milieu that's there. I just think that there's so much to mine there, especially where you have rare books and special collections, which is this hyper-intellectual, hyper-qualified area sat next to the people that are just drinking beer on the quad. So totally. something about that juxtaposition really yeah. works. But there was a part where Liesl went outside with, here it is. So she goes outside and it talking about, I think one of the other characters was emotional. So they mm-hmm. went outside. I don't want to give too much away. I hate it when people tell too much. So I just, I can't. So, yes, inside the library, his tears were conspicuous, but out here amid all this youth, they could be invisible. So I marked that passage. And then when I got to the back of the book, I saw that you had kind of explored that idea of women arriving at a certain age where they are then invisible. And all throughout, I was so fascinated by that because then all throughout the book, as I was reading, I kept having to mentally age up. Liesl. I wanted, in my mind, I kept picturing her as younger and then I kept pushing up. So that was an interesting idea for me, but talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. I'm interested. Did you read that in an article? Is that right? Not just in an article. It's, it's an idea that I've really encountered a lot in, in my life. And I don't know if you've ever had this, but if you're in like a fitting room, for example, and the woman in the fitting room next to you is maybe an older woman. So maybe she's in her fifties or sixties and you walk out and you're like, Oh, you know, you you look nice. You're being polite. And she's like, it doesn't matter. No one looks at me anyway. 
Yes. That's like a thing that I've heard through my life. And they're always kind of joking. Like no one is, no one's feeling really sorry for themselves saying that, but it does seem like there's this idea that as a woman at a certain part of your life, you just stop being looked at and you, and you recede and you become wallpaper. And I don't know if it's when you, you become a parent. I think a part of the transition is, you know, you become a parent and then you're no longer a person. You're, you're just responsible. You're just responsible for this other life. And then what does that do to your identity, to both your self-conception and to other people's conception of you when, when let's say your child then grows up and and goes away, but you've ceased like 18 years ago, you ceased to be an individual. You were just like, you're just a caregiver for this person. So it's almost like you don't, you don't exist. There's this invisibility. And it's not like I've heard it. Like I said, I've heard it a lot from women, but kind of starting at, you know, 50, getting, getting to their 60s. So not like old women, just women who are just sort of past middle age. You'll hear it from women in their forties too, that they're sort of becoming invisible, that no one's looking at them anymore. And I just find that I just, in a certain way, I find that scary, you know, mm-hmm. to think about myself, like how prepared am I for that? I feel it happening. I feel it happening already. Yes. Um, is that something, or on the other hand, is that something that you'd appreciate? Is it, a, is it a relief to not be looked at so much when as a woman, you know, from the time that you're, you know, 14, all you are is a thing for people to look at. So maybe that's a relief that that starts to go away. What I, what I wanted for Elisal, you know, of making somebody the protagonist of a mystery novel is maybe she can use that invisibility because if you're not being paid attention to, if you're not being maybe granted the respect that you deserve, then there could be the idea that you're, you're able to observe things that people maybe wouldn't necessarily notice you doing. So in the case of somebody trying to solve a mystery, that invisibility becomes a tool, but it's something that it's something that I've thought about for a long time, just because I've heard it so much. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you say it to another woman, uh, you know, to a woman who's my age or younger, they're like, Oh yeah, I have heard people say that. And it's, and when you reflect on it, it's like, it's so strange. Imagine that idea becoming invisible. I've read since writing the book, and having to talk about this a lot, I've read some really interesting essays and articles, none of which I can remember any information about right now. So I'm totally useless to you That's okay. uh, about women who have written about this really eloquently. And I just, yeah, I, I find it really interesting. That was something that I wanted to spend some time thinking about. It comes through. And I think it is a topic worth exploring because like you're saying, there's a lot there that on the one hand, yes, some relief, but then also what does that mean for the way that we see other women of that age and also ourselves? I mean, it's a lot, it's so layered. And I I think I can identify, like you're saying, I mean, I'm in my early forties. And so I'm starting to see pieces of that as a mother of teenagers, where you really do kind of step into this support role of, it, you don't want to over-identify with what they're doing. There is sort of a necessary invisibility for hopefully, Lord willing, them to grow up and launch as healthy adults, right? Nobody wants yeah. to be the mom from Mean Girls. You know, I'm, not a, I'm not a regular mom. I'm well, a cool I'm mom. A cool mom. <laughs> yes. But also then, how do you exit that and 
then regain some of that. Yeah. And retain your personhood. Yes. Both for yourself and in the eyes of other people. I think you, that's something that you really have to fight for because I don't think that you're automatically granted that in the eyes of other people, certainly not in the world that we've constructed right now. I think that that's something that we can work towards, but I don't think that you emerge on that other side of parenthood and people are like, oh, I'm interested in you as an individual again. <laughs> I don't think it's that easy. No, it does. It takes a lot of intention. And it really made me wonder about my own biases too. I was kind of wondering if I, if I notice other women at that age too, and men, but also it, I think it is a little bit more endemic for women. And so that, I don't know, it, there's a lot to think about there. So I really appreciated that that was in there. And I thought, I I really liked Liesl's character too. I think you wrote her very well. And I liked a lot of the side storylines that were happening. And it was it was a really well-crafted book. And there were quite a few pieces that I was surprised by in wonderful ways. So I think you did a great job. But I have cool, to be very ambiguous about that and <laughs> mysterious course. myself. What can I say? <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. <laughs> I have a question for you about in the back. There's a, a question in the reader's guide, and it was asking about the difference between a forgery and a facsimile. And whether you think one has value, what your thoughts were on those. And again, I feel like this book was packed with things I had never thought about before. And I love that when I can read a book and think about kind of send you down rabbit trails. So what are your thoughts on that? Did you have ideas on that whole forgery facsimile difference? I'm so torn about that because isn't that a crazy thing to think about? You know, so when when it's a forgery, when it's made illicitly. Yes. No matter the quality. And I mean, you can have a perfect quality forgery. Are we seeing that that's bad and that doesn't have value, but when something is a facsimile, so it is made in the same ways as a forgery, perhaps less well, perhaps with less care, likely with less care. Yeah. But that is something that can be in a collection and have value, maybe not the same value as the original, but we're saying that this has, this has value and usefulness for us. And so if you have a forgery and it's beautiful and it communicates all the things of that the original does, 
are we saying then it doesn't have value? Now I understand that there are lots of things about an object that give it value besides its form, you know, it's provenance and, and things like that. But I don't, of course. I don't, I don't know where I land on that. I really, I really struggle with that. I thought I find forgery absolutely fascinating. <laughs> like, like as an idea, that's something yes. that I, I like to explore a lot more, whether it's in fiction or just kind of really digging in, because as much as I love, you know, like Vanity Fair every five years, we'll have a story about like a rare book or an art theft. I'm like, Ooh, this is for me. I pour myself a glass of wine and read this. This is, this is what I want. I love those, but I love the forgery ones almost even more because imagine the idea that you're so gifted that you can produce work like this and, and that your work can be celebrated up until the moment that somebody understands that it's that you are the one who created it, not who whoever they perceived to, to be the creator. I mean, I, I love that idea and I'm fascinated by the psychology of it. So I don't have a great answer for you because I don't know how I feel about it. I waffle back and forth. I mean, I'm in the business of preserving these objects, you know, for, for my job, you know, I work at an institution that's celebrated for, you know, we have a, we have a Shakespeare's first folio. Does that lose its value? I mean, the fact that it was a first folio and that it is that original thing is what gives it value. And if we were to find out that it was a forgery, I mean, that would be devastating. So obviously I'm, I'm tied up in the idea that these, that it's like the real stuff matters but yeah, I don't, I, I feel, I feel many ways about it. That makes sense. It is kind of a, if a tree falls in the forest sort of problem, right? If it's, if I know it's a forgery, if I never knew it was a forgery, then how does that change the thought around it? Whereas if I do find out, then suddenly I feel a completely different way about it. It is. Yeah. An interesting question. It's almost how people feel about brand names sometimes. Like if you're wearing something that's, you know, if you're wearing a beautiful piece of clothing and it's made beautifully and thoughtfully, but it's a knockoff of something, that's really really complicated. Like what if it's made with all the same care as the original, but it's worth so much less? And I like, listen, I respect intellectual property and everything like that. I'm not saying that you should go knock off uh, (laughs) Chanel dresses. Like I, I totally respect the intellectual property in that, but I just do wonder like at what point if the level of craftsmanship is the same, like why are we ascribing so much value over here and not the same value over here? It's just interesting to think about. Absolutely. This book made me want to interview someone. I put it on my list for next season. I want to interview someone from an auction house or someone that works with those sorts of items. I have no idea if that's possible, but I'll start my cold calls soon and we'll see where I ended up. But I think it's so exactly what you're saying. The the whole process of that, also just the valuation and the determinants of you know where it came from, all the things, the steps they go through. And then, and especially with these sorts of items, the money is unreal. Just the amounts that we're talking about are pretty insane. So to think about that whole world, like you said, it's just an, it's a, it is a world that's a perfect place to put a mystery. It's very Thomas Absolutely. Crown Affair. Totally. And who doesn't love the Thomas Crown Affair, right? Oh if we gosh. can get anywhere to there, then, yes. then we're doing something right. Absolutely. This would make a great, great movie. Does it have any options? If I, if I had money, I'd buy it. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, so nothing yet, but Hollywood. Give yeah. Me a call. <laughs> Give her a ring, everybody. Yeah. Well, this will clearly be your first step. I mean, definitely. Connections yeah. abound from librarians, right? I'm obsessed with the idea of Diane Weist playing the character of Liesl. She's who I have in my head. So Diane Weist, if you're listening, if you're a fan of this podcast, you're out for your morning jog or you're washing dishes. Yes. Call us at (laughs) (laughs) 555-1212. That's perfect. Yes. We will definitely put her in touch with you. It is amazing how certain characters with actors and actresses just jump into your mind and you think, yes, that's who should play this person. So you're behind the scenes, but in terms of you're still in an academic environment. Do you like being around students or do they bother you? Oh my God, I love it. So there's, it is funny. There's a line in the book where I think Liesl says that students really interfered with Liesl's enjoyment of the campus. Yes. And that, and that is sort of a running joke with us because you sometimes, you know, you'll work all summer, particularly at the end of the summer when, when there's no classes in session and it'll be super quiet. And then one day, and I get to work pretty early, like there's no, I get to work at like 7.45. There's no students kicking around. So Fantastic. it won't be until like I leave my office. I'm like, oh my God, there's a lot of people around here. And so we do where joke. Where did you all like, come from and where the, put your, put away your Frisbees. Right. But I can't, <laughs> but oh my God, I, I love it. Especially, you know, the last couple of years, I haven't spent a ton, uh, haven't spent a ton of time at the office generally because we were like, I really can't do a lot of my job remotely. So we were one of the last ones to, to come back mm-hmm. and just like, I think it was like two weeks ago. I left the office. I had to like get something. I think it was just like getting, getting lunch. It was a nice day and I was going for a walk. And there was, I mean, there were so many people out there just like down on the street, uh, like waiting at the falafel truck or like waiting for coffee, just like rushing. There's that particular moment when classes let out, all of a sudden there's just like thousands of people and oh my God, do I love it. I love it. They're great. I mean, they're, I'm just endlessly fascinated by their dynamics. I, you know, when I do interact with students, we, we wind up with a bunch of student employees Mm. and they're just like, Oh, they're so smart. man. (laughs) They're so smart. (laughs) And that's, and that's really interesting to me, but, but yeah, I love it. I love that there's that every year there will be more of them. I love watching them interact with the space and with each other. I mean, on the first spring day, I was walking from my office to the subway and there's one frat house. We don't have a frat culture in Canada, generally at U of T especially, but there's like one random frat house. It's like in the middle of campus. Don't know why. Some weird, yeah, yeah, some weird Lexi stuff. And they had like pulled a table out and they were playing beer pong on the front lawn. I'm like, oh, look at you making memories. (laughs) Look at you having a college experience. I love it. So yeah, yeah, love it. I feel like everyone's mom in that situation, right? <laughs> Where I look at that, like you're saying, oh, yeah. look at you living your little lives and right? growing into who you're be- going to become. Mm-hmm. You know, that really does speak to what you were saying earlier too, about that invisibility though, where you do become a different, I think that just age for everyone we're observing a little bit more. Yeah. A hundred percent. Do you think that these kids at their age are smarter than you were at that age? I feel that way because okay. when I reflect on like 19, 20, 21 year old Eva, she seems to me like she was super dumb, <laughs> but maybe everyone feels that way about themselves. And, and certainly 
you know, you get, you get, you get to talking to, to one of the, you know, whether it's a student employee and there are some things that they're just not very self-aware about, or sometimes they think they know more than they actually do. And that's fine. That's part of being that age. Yes. I do think though, where they are smarter than I was, or I just about anyone that of my generation was, is they are more thoughtful about each other, thoughtful, understanding that there's lots of different ways of being a person in the Mm. world in a way that we, in the way that we weren't. And that I really appreciate, you know, I do really like that without being, without being told or without being asked, you know, when they set up their like Zoom or Teams name, they always put their pronouns mm-hmm. and that's just something that they, that they know to do. And it's largely to be respectful of other people, things like that. I really appreciate it. So in that way, they are smarter because they've been, yeah, they've been thoughtful in a way that we weren't necessarily. So yeah. So I, I feel like me, my young self was dumber than their young selves, but I, I don't know. I think you're right. I think that is sort of that hindsight, right? Where it's yeah. just like, what was I doing? Oh my gosh. But you're right. The self-awareness, I think something, yeah, you can't, you can't yes. get past that. And then no. I also do love that idea. And I will agree too. now, you know, having teenagers and a word for teenagers, they go to bed later, but they're also super awesome and fun. So don't, don't despair. I feel like all anyone ever hears about teenagers is that oh my gosh, it gets worse. And anytime someone says that, I'm like, that's a horrible thing to say to a parent of a young child. Yeah, no, I'm excited to get to hang out with my kid for real. It really is fun. But also what I see in their relationships and is exactly what you're saying, where there's more space for different types of kids. Just if you are into some random thing, there's probably somebody else out there and there's a lot more freedom in that. I feel like there's it's less narrow than it used to be, at least from my perspective, and that feels like a gift to them. They're, and also the emotional intelligence. And that's one more thing I want to touch on before we go is I love that you have a couple characters in this book that are working through various stages of mental illness. And I thought that was very well treated in the book, especially because I felt like the focus was less on the people who were in the midst of it and more on their supporters and their the people that were around them. Is that what you were sort of angling to do in that? Yeah, per- particularly in Liesl's relationship to her, to her husband. And I yes. don't think, well, I guess we have two marriages in the book where you have a person who's struggling with their mental health and then you have their their partner. And I think that one of the things, you know, when we think about what are people who are younger than us better at than we were, and certainly the older generations were, is, is an understanding of mm-hmm. mental health. And I find the idea of being in a long relationship, in a marriage particularly, with someone who has a mental health struggle, I find that a really interesting idea to think about, Mm -hmm. Uh, to think about what that would mean for the person who becomes the support person, what type of responsibility, probably resentment at times. Absolutely. But also just the level of of care, what that would mean for child rearing, what that would mean for work, all those things. But talking about a person who you love and who are you, you're actively deciding every day that you want to have as a part of your life that you that you want to stay married to, 
Yeah, I find that really, I find that really fascinating and I wanted to explore. And I, and what I wanted to think about too, is when we interact with people in our lives, like that is a part of someone's life that you wouldn't know about. Right. Mm -hmm. So you might have, you know, your boss or a coworker that might be part of their daily reality and a really big part of their daily reality. It might be shaping it. It's really shaping how they interact with the world. It might shape, you know, what time they have to go home. It might shape, you, you know, how they react to to given situations, but you don't know. And so when you have a character like Liesl, who is having to, you know, make decisions about a crisis that's going on around her, who's having to respond to other people in her workplace and is being maybe not as supportive as she could be because she's exhausted by this other thing in her life. Like that is all part of her reality as part of being a person that you have all this stuff. So that's, that's what I wanted to communicate that when you have, when you're dealing with somebody in a professional context, their, their other stuff doesn't go away. And not only does it not go away, it's a really big part of shaping how they're going to interact with you too or how they're going to respond to, to things that are going on around them. So, so I'm, I'm glad that you liked how that was treated. That was, it, it's always, you know, sort of nerve wracking to, to try to express something that I think is so, so close for a lot of people and can, and brings up a lot of emotion, but I think it was important for me to express her as a whole person. And that that's a really big part of who that whole person is. You did that very well. And I really also appreciated too John's character that he wasn't one dimensional because I think that's the other thing that sometimes we see, which is person who struggles with mental illness, period. And we often only see them when they are in the struggle. And the reality is that there's a another side to that, which is those people are often tremendously creative and kind and intuitive and these other pieces but this is just part of their makeup. But when we're always seeing kind of the heavier side of it, then that gets written. But to know, you know, seeing him also in well moments when he's supporting her, that was, it was just very, you did a really good job of capturing the nuance of that. And I appreciated that as someone who, you know, has gone through my own times with anxiety and depression within my marriage. I mean, I've been married for almost 20 years. And so I could really identify with some of that because there is a lot of emotion there. And at the end of the day, though, this is the person you love and you're waiting, supporting. It's just a very layered, challenging experience. And you did it very gracefully and it wasn't, you didn't cheapen any parts of it. So I really, I thought you did a great job. Yeah, I really wanted to make it clear to the reader that just, because John is someone who's struggled with his mental health, that it, that does not make him the weaker partner in the marriage. And in fact, when you meet him, when you meet them, he is the one who is very much, like you said, being a support to her. He is the one who's making sure that she's eating, that's making sure she's not drinking too much, that's being the caregiver. Yes. So even like despite the the, the history that they have and their decades together, like those balances shift in our relationships with people. It's not, things are rarely equal. You know, yes. there, are, there are sometimes in a marriage or a friendship or any long relationship when you were the giver and other times the, that you were the taker. Yes. And 
and you know, a lot of that depends on the circumstance of a moment. So I really wanted to make that clear that it is a good marriage and that they are still together, not because it's not because they have to be in some way, but because they're both getting a lot out of it. Yeah. That turn taking, you're exactly right. In any long relationship, I mean, it just it all ebbs and flows, right? Yeah. I mean, I've heard. I'm mostly perfect. So <laughs> of course, I mean, right. There's that. So yeah. I'm obviously the long suffering party in this situation, but of course, what can I say? (laughs) Eva, this has been so enjoyable to talk to you. I want to ask you one final question and that's Mm -hmm. one thing that you're not good at that you wish you were. Any sort of sports, any sort of sports. I'm I'm the least coordinated person. I would love to be like good at tennis, you know, on the ball, like be able to hit a ball. And I just not, not coordinated, not athletic. And it just seems, y'all seem like you're having fun out there playing your your little games. Love to be part of that. I'd love to be part of it. Please invite me, but don't, because then it's going to, then it's going to be weird. Oh, that's amazing. Y'all look like you're having fun out there. Yeah. Yeah. But tennis to me, I love that you picked tennis. Tennis to me feels like you're just cooking. I think anything where I'm too hot, I get really irritated. So I feel like you're just cooking on a variety of surfaces, but I'm sure tennis players out there will beg to differ with me. Cute little outfits. That is great. That is true. The outfit makes a difference. Yeah. Uh, Okay. And I shoot, I just have one more question. Are you working on another book? I am. So I'm just, I think I'm pretty, pretty close to it. It's not a, not a mystery this okay. time. I'm working on it. I just sent it off to my agent and it's like, it's not a mystery, okay. it's sort of a speculative piece about a family of refugees in the 1980s who is fleeing a country where the sun never shines and they're trying to get a part of the world where there is sunlight. So it's about food. A lot of it is about food and, and eating and about families and refugees and immigration and, and all that stuff. So hopefully you will see that out in the world one day. Well, when I when it is out in the world, I would love to have you back to talk more about it because I think I really could talk libraries, especially with you all day, but then we can talk about food too on the side. Totally. Love it. Perfect. And maybe, maybe I'll have uh, acquired tennis skills by then. <laughs> Perfect. I'll be sure to post a video of it alongside. Perfect. So for Yes, we can make that happen. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for having me. This has been so much fun. This was fun. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Ask a Librarian. As always, it's my joy to share and learn with you. You can follow me on Instagram at Julie Writes Words, or you can go to my website, juliewritewords.com. There you'll find the show notes, including all the books mentioned in the episode. See you in the stacks next week. And until then, friends, never go anywhere without a book. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 